And I think the main underpinning reason is is quite simple. It's about accountability. And there are people in society that exercise power and authority over other people. And mechanisms to be able to hold them accountable are very important. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howey, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bearers. We've all been angry at a situation and let it out on social media. It makes sense. That's a place our friends and community can gather from afar and acknowledge our feelings and join the process of venting. The trouble these days, however, seems to be when that's all we do, when we have legitimate concerns about policies or the actions of others, particularly those in a position of authority. When it comes to complaining, there's not necessarily a right way, but there certainly are effective ways, especially when we want to see a change as a result of our concerns. Whether it's someone trespassing on property, a community member feeding wildlife inappropriately, or a complaint about how a public official conducted themselves, it's important to understand that without proper communication, little may change. That's why I connected with Bryce Cassavant, the former conservation officer who faced disciplinary action for refusing to kill two innocent bear cubs. With his mixed background of military and law enforcement, as well as his PhD studies at Royal Roads and his new role with Pacific Wild, Bryce was the ideal candidate for this interview. We got into government complaints processes, how and when the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act can be utilized, and the reality that many people in our communities may face very real fears or wade through the tides of others' privilege to exercise their rights. So, let's get into it. I, something that I see a lot of online, um, both in my local community. I was actually dealing with some of this this morning uh, and through the Fur Bears work and Defender Radio and even on things like CBC's Facebook page and Twitter feeds, people make complaints online and then seem frustrated to not get resolution. And this can be, again, anything from local community issues up to large-scale systemic problems in a government bureaucracy uh, and it seems people have forgotten how to make a complaint. Uh, so how would you recommend, like, what, what's the first step when someone has concerns? And, and let's use, for example, uh, environmental related issues, because that's what you're most familiar with. And that's what our audience is most sure. familiar with. How do we start the process of actually making a complaint? And why does it matter that we formally do this? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's a topic that, that, <laughs> that I'm very passionate about and very close to my heart as a former law enforcement officer for the province for a variety of reasons. And I think the main underpinning reason is, is quite simple. It's about accountability. And there are people in society that exercise power and authority over other people and mechanisms to be able to hold them accountable are very important, whether that's our policing services or senior bureaucrats making critical decisions that affect many of us and and most certainly that affect our environment. I think it's 
first important to separate out the different styles of communications generally before we talk about complaints specifically. Mm-hmm. And there's two types of major communications within government organizations, but also corporations as well. Any large scale uh, organization that has a lot of bureaucracy uh, attached to it, some national nonprofits would be included in this. There are two fundamental styles of communications. And one is what I would call official correspondence. And the other is what I would refer to as transitory communications, communications that are somewhat fleeting in nature. Transitory communications are probably the most complex area because they include everything from emails, which can have an element of officialness to them, if you will, Mm -hmm. to text messages, to sticky notes slapped on your laptop. You know, the the list goes on. It's, It's endless. There's many different styles of transitory communications that can be used and many of them are are somewhat fleeting in nature official correspondence however is usually written formal documents something along the lines of memos briefing notes in the government what they call cliff notes letters uh, you know longhand letters responses to those letters things of this nature. And what's interesting to note is complaints, when we complain about an act, a a government action or decision, let's say a police officer's conduct in the field, as an example, putting a comment on Facebook doesn't equate to any form of official correspondence that would result in that complaint being actioned. And so complaints are, and the category of complaints, are, are important to understand that we need, we need to be involved in the category of official correspondence and complaining correctly about the issue at hand. And I'll, I'll pause there because I know you've, you've probably got some questions now at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think it's, it's, it's interesting just to hear it sort of played out this way. And again, it's something that some of us through, through our experience, through privilege, have never had to necessarily struggle against. Uh, you know, I, I'm a, a well-spoken white man with a big voice. I'm a big guy. When I talk, people will sometimes listen just because of that. <laughs> and, and I, right? Like that's, it's frankly true. And then you add on, I have the background of journalism and communications. So I've been exposed to how bureaucracy works and how governance works. Um, so for me, it's a, it's just something I, it, I, I have no act. I don't know that anyone ever explained to me how this stuff works. I just observed it over time. And that's something right. that I think I take, uh, I take for granted regularly. Um, again, that's something I'm struggling with in my local community is trying to communicate to people the importance of doing this. Uh, literally, yeah. you know, people talking about hypodermic needles being left laying around and petty mm-hmm. and property crime. Uh, and they're complaining on Facebook. And I'm saying, well, did you call police? Did you call the city to report this harm reduction issue? And on and on and on. And it it's just, it sort of astounds me. So it is interesting. And, and 
I think that's, you know, what you're explaining is the the fundamental core of what these communications are. So I think it's valuable. So I'm just going to go ahead and continue on. Yeah, well, this raises, I mean, what you just said raises a very close second point is that the ability to understand what is official correspondence and what is transitory communications, there's there's a certain level of articulation and education that is needed. And whether that education is just through os- osmosis, let's say dealing with the police a lot in your life, therefore mm. you're familiar with some internal processes because you've either A, been through the system before or somehow been on the inside or had some form of, of interaction with them so you understand the process. But that that knowledge has quite a bit of value to it. And is a is is a field level training tool that that many people adopt through osmosis, not necessarily through official training, unless of course you're an officer, as one example. But there is a certain amount of privilege that's attached to that. I mean, can can you imagine being an individual who is a minority, who does not speak English, who has had a very negative interaction with the police? And the expectation is that if you're not happy with the officer's conduct, that you complain to the department. Well, that's quite difficult to do if you're a a minority and you don't speak English and you can't read the forms or you don't understand how to navigate the system or you've just had a very serious negative interaction with an officer, the last thing you're going to do is walk into that same detachment and ask for help. Especially if you come from a place where police are not bound by the same laws necessarily that they are throughout Canada. Most especially if your background is something other than a democratic society where, you know, police misconduct is, uh, we would like to say the exception, not the norm, Mm -hmm. although it does happen here as well. You know, and so, I mean, that's one example. I think many people in our society, and I know this is a national podcast, but I think many people can relate to that analogy. Well, let's move it over to the environmental world. It's very similar. We see a 3,000-year-old tree cut down in the forest, and we're angry. What do we do? And many times, the knee-jerk reaction is to take a picture, post it on Facebook, write a blog, and start complaining. But that, quote, complaining isn't a complaint. (laughs) And so nothing nothing ever gets actioned internally uh, with government. And so, again, it's, it's very similar to my previous example, where unless you have that experience or knowledge or training of the current system being used for complaints, it becomes difficult to to understand and sometimes very daunting to even begin to understand what the correct process is. But I think once that understanding is provided, it's actually it's actually quite well com- complex. It's not complicated. And I think here here it is. Most government departments have an official complaints system which is made publicly available, although it's often buried in the government website. (laughs) Yeah. 
in BC, and I know it's the, I believe it's the natural resource officers where you are, Mike, in, in Ontario, and they they also have a, a complaint system as well. Although I'm not familiar with the uh, the exact link, but I've run across it before in some of my work. But here in BC, we have two environmental law enforcement services. One of the natural resource officers, which focus mostly on forestry, wildfire, and uh, water crime. And then we have the conservation officer service, which is a an armed armed environmental policing services as you will, uh, much like the, our police, provincial police force here, ERC, which we use the RCMP. Mm-hmm. And they also have a complaint system and a conduct, conduct complaint system. These forms are absolutely critical when you have a complaint about the government itself. They are absolutely critical to fill out and, and get on the record because they form a part of official correspondence pertaining to your, quote, complaint. And many times uh, we miss that step where the law enforcement service in, that should be investigating these allegations of environmental crime or misconduct in many cases on government staff's part simply don't initiate the investigations because they don't have a, quote, official complaint yet yes and so even though they know what's going on because there's no complaint filed by the public it's easier not to deal with it and that's very very common in this province and if the rest of canada is anything like pc and many other provinces as well so in overcoming that it's important to research depending on the province you're in research the environmental law enforcement service that is responsible for investigating these uh, allegations, whatever the issue may be, there's a plethora of them, and ensure that the proper complaint system is abided by and filled out. And, it's, and, it's, outreach, for, oh. and outreach for assistance if, if you don't know how. Yeah. yeah. And it's 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 fascinating too. Um, while we're talking somewhat sort of in between complaints about environmental issues and complaints about those who investigate environmental issues um, broadly, this is even true. Uh, and again, this is my local experience of police issues. Um, y- you can't expect officers to attend a scene if you don't call and say, I saw a crime happen. Uh and it's surprising to say that out loud, but that is the reality. And I've dealt with that both as a community member in, you know, urban Hamilton, where there is a uh, plethora of crimes. Uh, and I've experienced that as a journalist uh, throughout Southern Ontario. And as you mentioned, sometimes it's a matter of, well, there may be a problem over there, but we have a report right here. So I'm going to deal with the report I have in front of me. Um and, and that's, again, it's one of those things uh, when we talk about uh, even, I think a great example actually is uh, attractant management with the bears, which has been a hot topic the last couple of years, particularly this year, it's been horrendous. We've been pushing people. If you see someone not doing what they're supposed to do, you have to call. And whether that's bylaw or conservation, it's been a little bit muddy thanks to certain decision makers. Um but the point is, like, you can't expect change without 
actually making that phone call and just saying, I don't like this or commenting online. And I sound kind of like a dick in saying this. I recognize that. But that's the reality is they're not going to go anywhere unless someone officially tells them there's a problem. That's that's the very you know, base of the communication. And in making the right complaint becomes important as well. We phone, you know, I still remember the story of uh, when I was working as a CO, we were on the RCMP's 911 dispatch center. So we were on the same, the same, you know, we had police radios, we're on the same system as the mm-hmm. RCMP. And 911 gets a call because somebody doesn't know how to cook their turkey. Yeah. And their turkey's under, well, but I mean, that's not a, that's not a policing issue. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's not, that's not a complaint. Right? Yeah. So, so understand there's some onus on society as well to be somewhat informed. Now I say that with caution, especially given my very first example, where sometimes it is difficult to be informed. And I used my um, earlier example of a minor uh, person of minority who didn't speak English, having this interaction with the police, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a pretty big slap in the face to then say at the, at the, towards the end of this conversation, well, it's your responsibility yeah. to inform. No, I, I understand there's, there's very, there's, it's a sliding scale. There's no black and white to this uh, issue, but it is very incumbent upon society generally to be somewhat informed and i use wildlife if we're going to keep this to environmental issues is a is a great example and the situation you just brought up is a citing a complaint yes or is the real complaint about the attractants that you've watched your neighbor put out for the last three months and never phoned for Mm -hmm. and then when the bear shows up you phone and complain about the presence of the bear not the presence of the Attractants, and that's a good example um, of of the own of sort of this reverse onus on members of our community to be informed and and call for the right reasons. Yeah, and that's something too that we as good neighbors can find ways to help communicate this. Um, uh, and I think bringing up the the issues of uh, language barriers, um, the experiences and systemic issues facing people of color and uh, minorities, those in the LGBTQ community, it puts a lot of pressure on people. And there is a very real fear sometimes of authority because of systemic problems and, as I said, experiential issues. Um, if, you know, the first time in your life you ever called to complain about something and you had a horrifying or traumatic experience, uh, you're less likely to call again. Um, and that's where we need to be good neighbors. And, you know, it, for example, um, I, I live in a, uh, a split level house and my neighbor knows that if there's an issue, uh, she can come and talk to me about it because I'm very comfortable around authority. Um, again, privilege. Um, but it's it, be, sort of being able to help in that way can also make a big difference or very simply say, if you need help filling out the form, um, you know, let me know. And I think that's where, you know, organizations like the BC Civil Liberties Association and others uh, throughout the country have done good advocacy work uh, on similar topics like we're discussing now where, you don't have to go to the detachment or you don't have to go to the government or you don't have to go 
to the officer that you're having the issue with or the bureaucrat that's making decisions that are affecting you. Let's say, you know, whether, you know, forget about environmental issues, maybe you're a tenant that's being evicted from their home or something like that. And the, um, someone at the Tennessee branch isn't treating you fairly as, as an example, you know, there's, there's, there's advocate, there's third party advocates that can assist in these areas and assist you in getting the right, um, forms and paperwork filled out so that you're in that category of official correspondence and that your complaint is is duly recorded and on the record. So that would sort of be a general approach to somewhat of, um, you know, and I'm sort of oversimplifying it, but, you know, it is, it is a little bit of, com- it is a little bit complex, but, but it's important to understand that venting on Facebook or in the comments section of the of, <laughs> of your local newspaper uh, isn't doesn't classify as as a complaint and it's unlikely to receive any official uh, action or response from those who are responsible to deal with the issue. Yeah. And uh, one of the impacts as well, when we talk about making official complaints and official correspondence on these matters is then when it comes to the advocacy side, um, and this is part of your role, I imagine now uh, in your new position, it's something that we at the Fur Bears do regularly, is accessing files and information through uh, Freedom of Information uh, and Privacy Act. I think that's the full name of it. Um, And it's one of those funny ones um, where when we, and I'm not going to use a specific example for a number of reasons, but I think you know the one I'm talking about. When we said, hey, we'd like to see, you know, how many complaints about this issue were made and what the resolution was. And it comes back over the course of five years with like a half dozen. And I know that's Mm -hmm. not the number of problems there were, but that's the number of official complaints that were made. And then the impact that has on everything from policy to funding uh, to oversight issues. To narrative. To narrative. I don't know what the public's complaining about. We don't have any issues here. Exactly. Exactly. You know, because nobody, you know, you know, everyone, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but, you know, there were many situations um, that we are aware of where individuals were either emailing the organization responsible directly or the line manager for the bureaucrats involved. And as a result, no official complaint was ever filed. It was all classified as transitory communications and binned. Mm-hmm. And not on the record. Never happened. You know? Yep. So, uh, And then I guess one of the things to consider, too, is what is the value in accessing things through freedom of information? This is something that I think it's kind of a it, it's a step away from the complaint issue. But to me, it's also something that's worth talking about and something I don't know that people understand the scope of. Uh, and one of the things that I've seen come up is people being surprised that they're asked to pay for some information. Um, wow. or like in Ontario, they like, and I, I always get tickled when people complain about BC's, um, ATIP, uh, that's the access to information portal, uh, system to file freedom of information act requests, uh, on Ontario, there's no online service. You're they'll, they'll accept emails now, but you still have to download the paper form and fill it out. Yeah. Uh, and then send them like a, a money order or give them your credit card information over the phone. Uh, so I find that kind of amusing, but nonetheless, um, 
the value in learning how to use the system and what to expect, I think, is something that's not necessarily looked at outside of, frankly, like advocacy and news organizations. Um, well, it's it's a really good point because freedom of information really isn't that free at all. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's important to, to understand... Again, this is sort of a system unto itself where there is this expectation within society that we have access to government records and correspondence and things like we've been talking about for the last little bit here, subject to a bunch of roadblocks and conditions, and that's the fine print in the legislation. So uh, we fill out, and many, and many people um, go down this road, we fill out these information requests for what we, we are searching for or what we believe to exist. And we get fees assigned or we're asked to pay the government to go find their own information. And it can be quite jarring, especially if you're very passionate about an issue and you've worked really hard on an issue and you think you know where the smoking gun is and you just need a copy and then you get a $3,000 fee request you know it can be quite alarming now it's important to note though two things one if you're requesting your own information you can't be charged for it so if you're requesting information about yourself as a person and in this um in this country corporations and non-profit organizations are also considered individuals and fall within this definition of person so if you work for an organization you you can also uh, file a request for any records that the government may be maintaining on your organization. And you can't be assigned any fees for that. And that's one way sometimes to avoid fees is to understand, first of all, what if you are a prominent researcher or a prominent individual or work for an organization that's um, being advocating against you know, for government policy change and legislation change. Sometimes it's a good start to actually file an information request under your own name or your organization's name just to see what government is saying, and that that is free. For general information, such as briefing note pertaining to the bear that was killed in XY community, mm-hmm. it, under the current system and it's duplicated in most provinces except for the federal government information requests which are currently taking a five dollar application fee but not assigning any fees it's a new it's a new thing they have but nevertheless general information is usually assigned some form of of fees and this is where it uh, it becomes important to know two things one is you have a right to file a complaint to the privacy commissioner yep. and understanding that complaints process is very critical in uh, having those fees waived or at the very least reviewed by a neutral independent party. But again, it's a very specific form and it's, a, it's important to do your due diligence on that process, but you do have a right to file a complaint and you so you have a right to, to have it reviewed and you have a right to request that those fees are reduced. And that goes through the 
deputy minister's office responsible for the records that you're requesting. And at a certain point, you can hit a wall. Uh, and I think that's also important to get uh, to get across. Um, and some of the fees, while they seem unreasonable, and we could argue probably in circles for days about what's fair and what's not, um, it can be, I mean, I filed some stuff where they came back and just said, really? Like, you're not going to be able to afford what this is going to cost. Um, and then they say, no, I want to see the, the proposal of what it's going to cost because I've made such a broad ask. And the reality is it's going to take a bureaucrat days at least to just do record searches because they have to go through all kinds of databases. Now, sometimes they can, uh, I can't say this directly, but it has been implied that, fees can be used as a roadblock intentionally. Um, and that's when it, it, it behooves you to understand the complaints process, as you've mentioned, um, and to request a review of that. And the fur bears have done that. We've been told, oh, well, mm-hmm. getting this information about a trap line or about this issue is going to cost you $900. And uh, mm-hmm. Leslie, who does a lot of our uh, Freedom of Information Act work, um, writes back and says, okay, well, this is in the public interest because X, Y, Z, and makes the argument. And then they come back and say, you're right. According to the legislation, we can't charge you for this, or we can't charge you that much for this. Um, but it is such an intimidating system. Uh, and that's, I, I, I don't know how to offer advice to people other than to maybe start wide and then narrow down as they go when they're doing requests. Um, but it is, it's such a broad system. And typically we're hoping to find one piece of information in a pile. Uh, It's a needle in a haystack. I don't know why that didn't come into my head to start with. Uh, I was trying to come up with a new analogy for that uh, because that's just who I am. And I kind of hate myself now, but um, it's, it is, it's a, it's a hard system to navigate. And the only way to really learn it, I think is to do it. Unfortunately, uh, like you, you gotta fail to to learn how to be better at it, um, unless you have access to resources um, such as you know uh, uh, the fur bears do or a law firm would, etc. Um, so I've met I've I've run across uh, many legal teams who don't understand how to properly navigate the FOI process and they charge your clients for filling out these FOI requests, which are either a completely not applicable or be the wrong form. Like I've seen legal teams want information on from the government pertaining directly to their client. They fill out a general information request. What's the wrong request? Or the, yeah. <laughs> it's supposed to be personal, the personal or, you know, things. So it's, it's even, even, even counsel, you know, whether you're a lay person in the public advocating for a local community issue, whether you're working for a nonprofit advocating for a wildlife environmental issue, whether you're dealing pol- with police, or whether you are counsel and a member of the bar, it's important to understand the, uh, the navigation of these systems that we operate in and and what their internal complaints mechanisms and review processes are yeah um and to help others as well and i think that's the key especially those 
who are marginalized within our society or have have uh, may not may not be as fortunate to be able to read and write and articulate themselves to help help them you know get what they need to to advocate for themselves and for others right yeah well, you know what I might do just for fun, uh, as an example, is to do a uh, personal one uh, for Defender Radio and myself in BC and see what pops up. Uh, that'd be a fun experiment to selectively share, depending on what comes up. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, sure. I've, I've got some skeletons and we're not going to share all of those just yet. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, now, I guess to, to wrap up, I, and again, this conversation could go for days. And frankly, when, when we're emailing with each other or talking, these conversations do go on for days. Uh, and I guess where I'd like to wrap up is it, it seems like this massive system, whether we're dealing with complaints, whether we're dealing with formal uh, complaints against government um, and as well as to, or we're dealing with the FOIs and all of this it's very easy to get discouraged and disenfranchised. And you are a person who has been up against that wall and walked away from it. Um, probably at times much more successfully than others. And at times not successfully. Um, how, what, what do you say to people who do feel, you know, beat down by it or disenfranchised or asking that question of what's the point? What's the, the message to keep going on this matter? Yeah, I would say compassion fatigue is very real. And it, it is a strategy of the state, and I use that term broadly to refer to many different government organizations, mm -hmm. but it is a strategy of the state to wear you down. They have a lot of resources, they have a lot of staff, they have a lot of money. And it's a David and Goliath situation, you know, the second you enter into these, these systems or government processes, whether you're dealing with the police advocating for an environmental issue or filing a simple FOI request for your own information, you are engaging with the state as a very large bureaucratic organization with unlimited resources. And and fatigue is, is very real. Taking care of yourself is very important. And it is difficult to do. I struggle with that myself. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably the least qualified person to be giving advice on this because I don't follow my own advice. <laughs> <laughs> and I keep fighting even when it wears me down. But it is important to sometimes take a step back and realize that you know if if you go down yourself you can't help others either and so i think there's a there is a fine line there there is a balance that needs to be held in these administrative wars that we wage one of the things that i've found helpful is not venting online not engaging with social media systems like mm. facebook and 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 um, comment section and comment sections and news and things like that. <clears throat> Even emails when people email my website or the organization, some of them get triaged, and people probably think that you know I'm I'm a, a, not a nice person because I don't respond to them. But I mean, there's there's between the my own website and then work as well. There's a lot of there's a lot of emails and transitory communications which simply aren't 
aren't applicable and are and are quite time intensive to respond to. And often I, I am unable to get back to people, and that's a that's a calculated um, decision, unfortunately. But it's necessary as well to maintain some level of of sanity. Yep. And the one thing I've hel- found helpful is to, if you are going to spend the time writing, and you really feel like you need to do a 500 word Facebook post, you know the time it's the time it's going to take you to write that. You're better off sitting down and writing a proper one-page letter on letterhead and mailing it to government. That is official correspondence to the organization that you're having an issue with. And it will be classified. Uh, and by, class, by classified, I don't mean like a military classification system. I mean, it will be classified as official correspondence in your, in your government. It'll be, a number will be assigned to, a bit, to it and it'll be categorized and it'll be responded to. And sometimes half the half the versus if you put that same time in and just did a Facebook post, nobody's you just vent it. And nobody's ever gonna nobody's ever gonna get back to you. So taking the time to engage in more formal traditional correspondence is a little bit of a lost art in society. But you'll get much more out of it if that avenue is chosen versus venting on social media. To find out more about what Bryce is up to in his new role of policy analyst at Pacific Wild, visit pacificwild.org. I want to thank Bryce for joining me for this interview, and I want to thank all of you for bearing with me as we took a down week and a half while the Wild and Free Press, the newsletter of the Fur Bears, was finalized and sent to press. You can keep up with what I'm working on by following me on social media, at Defender Radio on Facebook and Twitter, and at Howie Michael on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. Defender Radio.